Welcome to the My Rules Are Better podcast. I'm Tom Barbelay, and today I'm embarrassed to say it's been four months, Chris Abbott, since our last talk. I can't believe that. Really? Four months? According to Skype, it's been four months. Now, I distrust Skype as much as the next person, but <laughs> in insanely long length of time, we have covered a number of topics through this podcast. A few of them actually intentional topics. Others have been raised by guests and participants since you last were on. I was hoping we'd have the chance to talk about the Palladium Rules, specifically Ninjas and Super Spies, with regards to modifying it, perhaps perturbing it in a particular direction to play Chechnya in the early 1990s. But as we've discussed so many topics, as we've had so many ideas and various bits and pieces come through this podcast since you last were on, are there any topics, anything that you'd like to raise initially? Oh, dear. Um, I binged the last uh, six episodes uh, this week once more to catch up, and I took down a number of uh, a number of notes. I mean, there was just so many things that were discussed, as you said. Uh, first question I would have to ask is, how's the lead pile doing? Well, I want to make this point because I posted a video. So, obviously, I had the chance to chat with Barney Dicker a couple of times, mm-hmm. and he posted a beautiful YouTube video that I then posted on Facebook, and I was contacted by a gentleman in the Philippines who had never listened to the podcast but still wanted me to send him some lead. I thought, mm. well, that's an interesting ethical problem. But my preference is always that people interact with the podcast and then I'll send them lead. The lead pile is in an interesting state. I sent off a bunch of figures to get painted just because the pile wasn't waning. I also picked up a squat army, which is a space dwarf army for folks not familiar with the 1980s Games Workshop vernacular which I've been able to... I have this process where I use Dettol, which is a disinfectant from the UK, and then alcohol in combination uh, through various washers. And so I picked up a bunch of squats, which also Barney had, uh, you know, received too. So I'd like to think the lead pile was reducing in number, but actually it hasn't been reduced at all. So I would certainly reach out to our listener base to consider... Even if even if you want just to say only two or three miniatures, just get in contact with me. I will send you a parcel. The lead pile will diminish. But unfortunately, I have to report, Chris, that the lead pile has not diminished since the last recording, and I wish it really had. I can commiserate uh, fully because since I last spoke with you, Grey for Now Games, which took over the... Uh, the production of the Test of Honor uh, Japanese skirmish uh-huh. uh, warfare have announced their version two rules and the new starter box set and etc. So that's going to be on its way in July uh-huh. because I still have an empty spot inside the 68 liter uh, plastic tub here that doesn't have miniatures <laughs> in it, unpainted miniatures in it. Fair enough. So yes, I, I can fully understand that. What else did I look at? I was curious whether the Just Plain Chaos rules, the latest update, was February 2019 or not. I, I think that was the I, last I backed that out from that rule set. That rule set didn't follow my own playtesting rules. It was more associated with feedback that I'd received through the game. I didn't have the option to do a heavy round of playtesting prior to actually rolling out those rules. The headshot rule was so fatal and mm-hmm. so divisive that I thought at the time it was probably best to roll back to the original edition rules. So Just Playing Chaos probably is best played with the original edition, which appears at the start of this podcast. And the updated rules are unfortunately a little bit too 
against general play, specifically the headshot rule, but also my aim to reduce the amount of dice rolling, which really just reduces the amount of dice rolling by a single dice at one point. I don't know. It didn't really play out right. I preferred the previous rules, so we moved back to the previous rules for the final game. Well, that's it's interesting you should uh, say that specifically, because ref the, uh, the Palladium rules... I'm, I have some concerns based on your discussion with Matthew, I believe it was, mm-hmm. you were talking about, let's see, unnecessary. Nope, that's a different topic at all. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so I, really, I literally have two pages of text Don't that worry. I put down Don't for worry. the last. And the, the, the idea was, what, what level are you trying to uh, simulate mm. of, the, of the combat? Because, you, you know, in organized combat, you've, your sort of smallest group is going to be your section. Yes. You know, maybe four or five men. Yes. Um, but, you know, are you doing it at a squad level? Because really the Palladium rules don't seem to have any mass combat, at least not in Ninjas and Super Spies. Without question. I mean, that, that is one of the points that I have some concerns about. My estimation is probably at most there will be six players each with a figure represented in the combat. So, so not purely- large, not large, you know, it's not you know, platoon level. It's really right. down to individual characters. I mean, I can foresee potentially some players playing two characters in specific circumstances. So, I mean, I think at most there'll be 10 aside. There will be the possibility for things like tanks, mortars, you know, these kind of things to be a part of the later part of the game, very similar to what I did with just playing Chaos Tanks into the game after about game four or five. And I don't actually have tank rules in the rule set that I put online, the PDF rule set. Uh, I had kind of a house rules, which came together on a single piece of paper, which never really reached the level of being put in any degree of scrutiny, just because the tanks were a very curious NPC in the just plain chaos rule system. But I foresee the potential for... Certainly, you know, bazooka kind of weapons and these kind of things. Certainly lots of sniping and range weapon possibilities. But I guess what I'm trying to get out of the Palladium rule system specifically is more associated with the diversity of character creation, the many different kinds of skills, which Just Like Chaos has a little bit, but not to the level of depth that Palladium gives. And just an ability to have probably more than two dozen of my own house skills, which will play into the setting of Chechnya in the early 1990s. Well, I, I think that you are definitely going to have to uh, massage the occupational character classes because they're, I mean, they're pretty pretty tight here. If you're looking at just a general uh, combatant, you might have uh, a veteran grunt uh, would be one of the character classes, but, you know, there's private eyes and maybe a martial artist, but then the martial arts section of Ninja and Super Spies is probably one of the biggest sections in the entire volume. Without so, question. No, it's going to um, be very much cut down. I mean, my view is, you know, maybe 30 or 40 pages from the original rule book with a, a section from the kind of contemporary weapons compendium, which I think is a very valuable resource. Yes, yes. And then, absolutely. so it's really about actually, in this case, printed pages, not photocopied pages, but creating a, a rule book which is a combination of probably between half to two-thirds palladium existing rules and then an additional third to half of my own rules. 
Okay, so how gritty do you want it to get? Like you, you mentioned the headshot in Just Plain Chaos mm -hmm. being sort of a, a no-go, and it is. It's deadly, right? You mm -hmm. get shot in the head, you're pretty much, you know, there's not much going to save you from that. Yes. Well, because in in the Palladium rules, as some people may know, you've got you've got the roll to hit, but the other person has some options of parry or dodge or take cover, depending on whether you're doing hand-to-hand or uh, modern weapons. Mm -hmm. uh, modern weapons, you don't get the parry, but you do get the dodge for dodge and run for cover. Then if you have somebody equipped with a flak jacket, whether it be sort of Kevlar or the old 60s ceram ceramic plates in the, uh, in the pockets around the vest, you've got to you're going to have to overcome the armor value to in order to create a wound. And you've got, of course, the armor has its own rating and its own structural damage capacity. And the person has their own structural damage capacity and hit points. And every every interaction is going to be roll for initiative, roll for attack. One to four is an automatic miss. 20 is a critical hit. Anything under the armor rating doesn't strike the person but hits the armor. If it does get through to the person, then you've got STC to take off. And then once you get through that hit points, if you're going to do optional damage, you've got locations and side effects for wounds. Uh, some wounds can be so massive that they create a physical trauma. Like if you were to take more than half of your uh, resilience in, in, in one shot, you could, you could end up taken out of the combat entirely. I just don't know how much of the optional or extended rules you want to uh, incorporate. Well, I think, my perspective is that a good number of those rules are actually probably incredibly beneficial for realism at a certain perspective. My main concern with regards to how this game will be played initially is whether it's made up of narrative players at work or what I would call kind of strategic tactical players. And the narrative players, oh no, I'm using the N-word. Let me apologize here. <laughs> the, yes, okay. um, <clears throat> how would one say it? The trajectory players, the uh, lore-soaked players. No, let's let's find another word here. The folks that like to tell stories around their characters, they play very differently. And what happened through the D and D campaign to the Just Plain Chaos rule set is all the folks that liked having characters with a detailed description that they, you know, engaged in a lot of discussion and this kind of stuff. Just Plain Chaos was far more about the tactics. It was far more about working out when you move from behind cover, how you approach certain obstacles, what ratios of, you know, surviving players and NPCs were out there, what your, you know, in a very structured way, what happened in combat with missile weapons primarily. So that framed the kinds of people that came back week after week to play Just Plain Chaos. I missed some of the characters that would have more, I don't know, just not that skill base, right? That were more associated with, can I outsmart a situation without actually getting into direct combat? And while some of those players continued on, you know, found grenades, found explosive devices, did a variety of things to try to avoid being in direct combat, the folks that had the tactical knowledge that kind of came to the game and said, you guys need to move that way because this will happen, then this will happen, if mm. this happens, then you've got to do this. Yeah. They were the ones that actually got the most out of the game. And week over week, they were the ones who came back. These are probably people that would be, in the extreme, probably more suited to playing Warhammer 40k 
than historically D&D, but they came to the D&D stuff early on. So my right. hope was to draw back a little bit from just playing Chaos as a kind of, you know, tactical role-playing game or whatever, or almost a war game, to be more associated with this complex environment where you have, you know, mafioso characters, where you have religious characters, where you have, you know, people in authority, and then you have a very rich kind of underclass and culture associated with that, which I think lends itself more to not just straight tactical players. Now, I may be being incredibly naive. It may just translate to just playing Chaos Rules in Chechnya. But well, what, yeah. Sorry, sorry, what, what mechanical foundation do you feel is necessary to capture what was going on, uh, especially in the first war, uh, sort of 94 to 96? And, and how are you going to, what rules are you going to use to sort of amplify or spotlight the things that are important about the Chechen conflict? What fascinates me early on, and really this is to the 92 through to four, is the notion of poverty disaffected youth but also the fact that there's a kind of organized crime, religion, government, you know, there are many different kind of stratas of, of possible paths of which I think everyone through this conflict, including, you know, doctors and things, you know, people that would be more traditionally in what I guess one would be describing lawful pursuits, that kind of skirted all these things as well. What I find fascinating with the Chechen conflict, in particular the First War specifically, is that it brings into question a lot of the standard kind of D&D, lawful good, morality, you know, these kind of things through pure survival. And I think that's an interesting narrative in role-playing game sense, because while, you know, Ninja the Super Spies is not the ideal rule set, it at least provides certain aspects of intrigue. Now, obviously, as you note, you know, professionally, there need to be a wide variety of different professions. You can't have, you know martial artists while they were there in some smaller thing, particularly in hand-to-hand combat, they weren't represented as ninjas, right, in the Chechen conflict. So my perspective is that the early formations of these groups, before they even became affiliated to whether they were, you know, nationalist or whether they were, um, you know, pro-Russian or whether they were independent of these things, is fascinating. And what interests me in a kind of, in a sense of, of the gameplay early on, is that we start with a group of effectively teenagers, early 20s, describing a situation, seeing what path they choose through this, you know, landscape. And then from there, the conflict kind of appears around them. So the choices they make early on dominate how they are in this conflict, but also then the choices that they make early on is how they survive and actually you know, make their way through the conflict to hopefully, you know, some degree of resolution. I mean, sadly, the history of Chechnya, particularly after the Second War, is of kind of brutal repression and basically eliminating all possibilities um, within this, you know, social whatever. So, I mean, I think what interests me through this is more creating a set of problems for a group of players where it's not a traditional role-playing game, and then seeing how they move through these problems to the point where things actually start to happen. You know, you actually have a, you know, a foreign military invading. You actually have a group of different narratives within the state itself trying to divide aspects of the state and, you know, even how, you know, people in certain parts of the countryside versus people in the cities and all these kind of things created very curious and interesting divisions, which I think 
could play itself out in a series of ways, which I'm ultimately relying on my players to construct. So if you're starting off in the, in the early 90s, um, equipment is going to be found or, or scavenged, scrounged. It's not going to be, it's not an organized effort. Well, it's, what's it's not even a militia. period is that firstly, many of the folks in Chechnya actually were part of compulsory Soviet military service. Oh, yes. So okay. a lot of the equipment exists lately out there. A lot of the equipment exists also in notions of gunsmithing and things like that, which is obviously pretty central to good portions of the Palladium rule system. So it's fascinating actually how much was accessible there, how much was kind of hidden and, you know, the, these kind of things are actually really very interesting because I don't think it's not a traditional, you know, it's not like Vietnam, for example, where the weapons had to come in from somewhere. The weapons were pretty liberally scattered. It was just a matter of kind of coordinating where they came from. And obviously, with the organized crime component, vast quantities of weapons came in through that as well. But I don't think it's inherently difficult early on for the players to get access to weapons. I don't think that's a... a but they're not getting access to, you know, top-of-the-line military hardware. They're getting access basically to, you know, pistols and poorly maintained Kalashnikovs and a variety of other firearms through that you know, through that area. Military surplus. Exactly. Maybe some even going back to the Second World War in some cases. Certainly. Yeah. Okay, so you're going to have to add some specific skills to the to the mix for your players to, to pick from. Mm. But uh, now, are they going to be subject to uh, morale checks? Is there going to be a psychological element to this? I think like, that's important. Uh, but I think what's interesting through this is that... Morale here has to be independent of, like, it, it has to be more associated with the individual and their relationship to a small group. It can never be in, it's a different kind of morale, which is one of the things I'm thinking about associated with the Palladium rule system, is how do I maintain morale with view that it's possible for a character to circulate between a number of different areas, a number of different views, belief systems, and ultimately structures, and there is an element of the super spy stuff in there associated with just being able to kind of lie in these circumstances as they move between these various groups. So morale here has a slightly less than the standard palladium definition of morale meaning. And that's something that I'm kind of grappling with associated with, you know, writing house rules around it. Well, the, the, one of the benefits of using palladium, or at least the, uh, what I thought was a, was a, a valuable difference, was the way that they, they treat an alignment. It's not lawful good, mm -hmm. chaotic evil kind of uh, uh, diametric oppositions. You've got principled and scrupulous people at one end and aberrant and diabolic at the other, <laughs> right? And that's one way of looking at it. But they also have in the ninjas, ninjas and super spies, they've got uh, disciplines mm -hmm. rather than alignments. So you yes. can pick something like uh, the discipline of honor or principled people with that discipline or, and you can have, you can have an evil person who is honorable. Yes. Right. So that, that gives you the level of granularity uh, because they're driven by whatever their particular ideology is. And they're very loyal to that. Um, they're not, uh, they're not uh, opportunists in that, mm. in that, in that manner. But, uh, I, I mean, I'm looking at for your attack rolls, considering one through four, 
are automatic misses, you're twenty. You're on a D twenty. You've already lost twenty percent of your your uh, range. Yes. And if there's any armor or cover involved, say they've got partial shielding behind a uh, a brick wall or uh, the front of a vehicle or something like that, again, uh, you're you're more likely going to miss than hit. When you do hit, if you have criticals involved, you could have any number of traumatic, uh, you know, double damage or or some loss of limb or or something like that. But there's also if you're talking about things that are uh, brought together sort of ad hoc, uh, like you said, poorly maintained Kalashnikovs. What happens if you have a jam or a misfire or a bolt blowback or something where the weapon is rendered uh, inoperative? And or there's also injury to the to the wielder, right? Yeah. Is that going to be part of the the grit level, or so is that no? Too much? No, I mean that's one of the things that I actually like about the rule system. It is very much tailored, as we talk about the extreme, particularly associated with headshots. It's very much tailored for the survivability of the player in most general senses. And the thing I like in particular are the rules around first aid and this kind of things in terms of maintaining, you know, even in cases of traumatic wounds, it's still a rule system which is very much based on the maintenance of the player up until a certain point, obviously. So Mm -hmm. that is one of the things that I like about the Palladium rule system, that it's, I mean, obviously for those of us that read these rule systems with a kind of critical eye, that's immediately explicit to us. But for a general player that's picking it up, it's like, oh, yeah, this is a rule system, and this is a thing, you know. And they will not necessarily view it in that hypercritical fashion which I think actually lends itself very much to these kind of rule systems being played in this this style because it's useful for week-in, week-out games. Well, uh, okay, so my my final big question in this is what would you... Why would you go with the Palladium rules, say, instead of GURPS? Uh, well, that's an interesting right. question. So I've recently, through a mistake, you might have heard this, I might have said this explicitly. Uh, the, yes, the foreign language editions. Well, you may not remember this, but I am going to meet Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston. And I, silly time that it was, I went and bought the GURPS rules thinking, Steve Jackson, right, that's fine. I even knew before I bought the rules, but for some reason it had just dropped my memory while I was going crazy on ABE books. <laughs> it's a different Steve Jackson. The GURPS system <laughs> I had had minimal exposure to. But Palladium was, you know, a rule system that I actually played. Uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles specifically, and I think maybe something... Oh, of course, the Robotech. So these two, you know, games, completely different, you know, players, but, you know, amazing level of interest, defined a good portion of my childhood play. So I've always had a thing for Palladium rules. I mean, you've you've met Kevin Sabita, so, I mean, <laughs> you, you probably have a similar thing, although, you know, we've talked favourably about GURPS as well. So, GURPS, possibly, but I actually prefer... There's an intimacy that I have with the Palladium rule system, which I think lends itself more to being used here. It's probably more pages of photocopying, but the thing that I like about the Palladium rule system, particularly the weapons rules versus the GURPS weapons rules, the GURPS weapons rules are conversational. The Palladium oh, rule system are statistics and notes. Right. So my view is that for the way that I play at work, statistics and notes, it has to be. Conversational rules are wonderful if you're sitting around for, you know, six days, coming back, you know, a few weeks later, playing again for, you know, four days in a row, this kind of stuff. But for the nature of the games that I play, it has to be finding rules very quickly, referring to them, and then moving on. 
So um, that's one of the distinct things that I dislike about GURPS specifically. But it had to be Palladium just from my background to answer something. The other the other players that are at work are probably, since they're more used to something like D&D than any other system, they would, um, I guess they would more readily accept the idea of level advancement and increasing hit points that's present in Palladium that is not present in GURPS. Well, yeah, but I'm going to manipulate some of that as well. I mean, I think, personally, I think some of that is a weakness in Palladium. I see hit points in terms of just a combination of things, like it's an idiom, basically, mm-hmm. as it is an idiom in D&D. So I appreciate that on some level. But I think the main problem I had playing D&D at work was that a majority of the characters did level up. We played it over about 18 months, and mm-hmm. by the end, we were dealing with characters that basically were going to be fighting demigods if they continued in the direction that they were going. You mm-hmm. know, there's, yeah. I mean, I used every possible interpretation associated with, oh, well, previously we were dealing with wild orcs, and now we're dealing with highly militarized orcs that wear armor and stuff. And, you know, I did every possible kind of creep associated with changing the rules specifically for their levels, but I don't want to do a a hyper-leveling-up game at work again. I think it kind of ruined the gameplay. It, it eliminated a lot of the challenges, and it just made the characters more like caricatures <laughs> than actual characters. But again, there's an appeal in something like D&D to go from zero to hero. Certainly. You start off as the, the farm boy or the the orphan uh, that runs away to join the military or the circus respectively and become fighters and acrobats. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not the, the fantasy trope is not present in the mercenary spy private eye uh, genre to the same extent. I mean, there it's are kind of as well. I mean, it's not to the same extreme, but you, the character needs to go through some development. One of the things that I like about the Palladium rule system is the, integration of skills in the character development. And my preference right. would be to weigh more on that than on just raw kind of point increases, uh, because that creates complex characters that have, you know, certain unique foibles in their creation, which is one of the things that I certainly like to exploit um, in, in games. So, yeah, I think yeah, I can probably find a calm balance with the Palladium rule system rounding down some of those things that I don't particularly like. Well, yeah, I, I'm just looking at some of the sections that you could you could eliminate some of the optional damage rules, mm-hmm. uh, or at least um, incorporate them over a period of time rather than having it at the start. You're going to have to add some skills to the character classes that are presented there because what I envision in sort of a hard scrabble life and you know sort of house to house fighting. That's not really reflected in these uh, skills too much. Certainly, but I mean, there are other nuances within Chechnya, specifically with regards to religion, but also cultural nuances that I think I can build a skill system around as well. And I think it's actually the nuances within these things which enable movement through city environments where you can actually find civilians that are willing to look after you because you have certain skills that are relatively unique, be they... um, you know, cultural skills or, you know, religious skills. I think that's an interesting way to put these cultural or religious things into perspective in a role-playing sense. So that is something that I'm thinking about very broadly currently, but we'll have to settle down into probably a dozen or so different skills that are, you know, examples of this thing. 
Okay. Are you going to be able to provide uh, sort of a potted history to different uh, character archetypes for your yeah. players to sort of put on the skin Certainly. of? I mean, when I when I started just playing Chaos, my thought was actually to have a series of rolled character archetypes. But then I realized that that was actually quite artificial based on the players that I had and that it would probably be better that they created these things. I think in a lore sense... What I want to do initially is just the first day of this game, the first three hours, two to three hours, will be character creation, but also discussion. And the way that I've done this both with the D&D game, although less so, and in Just Blank Chaos game, is I started by talking about where the characters could come from, what the possibilities could be, and then saw if people were interested in these things. So... What I had, there was a group of dwarves, for example, that were like the second generation of NPCs in the D&D game, but also gave the ability for people that wanted to attend a couple of games or they had kids that, you know, did after-hours sports or all the usual things, that they could have characters that they could come back to. So I had a pad of maybe 12 dwarf characters, which were all based on miniatures, and they had their own arc, story arcs. And I provided this pad to people, and they'd tear out a page if they were interested, and they'd roll up the finer points of these characters. But they were characters that were basically there, ready. So my view with this setting, for want of a better term, is that I can do something similar there and have, you know, a short list of potential characters, but then also describe elements of the setting through this. Now, the benefit that you get with D&D is most people know what dwarves are. And if you point to a miniature and you say... That dwarf, you know, with the beer in his hand and the crossbow in the other hand, has this particular story arc and this kind of character and they do this kind of stuff. The miniature helped very greatly in this circumstance because immediately people are like, ah, you know, that guy's nude or that guy's got a lot of armor or that guy's just carrying a torch or that guy clearly has a lightning bolt coming out of his, you know, left hand and this kind of stuff. So the miniatures that I'm picking for the Chechen thing are also really highly characterful miniatures. And I think that's incredibly important when you start people out, is that you point to miniatures and you say, these are the possibilities here. Here, Are you interested in taking one of these kind of pre-created things and then adding your own nuances to it? Or would you like to start something afresh? Another thing which we haven't talked about here, but I will talk about, is Hero Forge. Oh, have, yeah. have you discovered Hero Forge? Yes, I have uh, designed several... Dwarven fighters there, but I have yet to commit to an order. Well, thankfully, you can get the... You can pay, I think, $9 for the raw file, the STL file, and mm-hmm. then send it to Shapeways for far better value. So the Hero Forge... So for folks listening in, Hero Forge enables you to create 3D miniatures of your particular characters. They have a few... The fantasy stuff is a bit hokey, but for the modern stuff, I used it very heavily with just playing Chaos to create incidental characters. And um, I used, I downloaded the STL files and then printed them out, usually on the cheapest, robust plastic that was available and add them either as NPCs or actual characters. So it's a very interesting tool. And in fact, for the Chechen rules, there are a bunch of civilians that I made through Hero Forge, grabbed, I think there are maybe four STLs that I have, kind of two bearded men, two, you know, um, at least uh, hooded women, and they then create the <laughs> the mass of uh, of civilians throughout this game. 
So Hero Forge is an interesting tool. And I know, for example, one of my co-workers who actually has a 3D printer ran a D&D campaign where he had people make their characters through Hero Forge, and then he had them printed out because he had the 3D printer to print them out through. Just out of curiosity, is it uh, FDM or SLA uh, print? Uh, it's the bath, the fluid bath. As yeah, opposed okay, to the, SLA. That's, yeah. 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 Uh, I've tried to get some stuff printed out uh, from a couple of people that have F- really good... Uh, resolution FDM printers, but it still can't handle the, the finer details in the figure. Amazing. Yeah. SLA yeah. is just, it's just stunning yeah. the level of detail. The spaghetti is a bit curious, but if you can get past the spaghetti and how you knock the spaghetti off. So for folks listening in, this is a bath which extrudes a series of spaghetti-like strands <laughs> to hold the thing together. That's what gives it kind of buildable rigidity. And then it comes out, and then you have to, I think you UV bake them or something, and then they get their rigid structure, and then you have to kind of, initially with, um, you know, wire cutters or something like that, but then going down to blades, take off these spaghetti-like tendrils that come off the figures. Um, yeah. But, yeah, that, for me, is a fascinating technology for this kind of space. It's Kalashnikov's pistols, various bladed weapons, a variety of different kinds of clothing, there are lots of different options through Hero Forge. Um, it's quite amazing, yeah. Yeah. So I've got a bunch of characterful miniatures that are non-Hero Forge that are uh, sculpted by a Russian gentleman called Igor Koprov, I think, who I'm friends with on Facebook, actually. And um, he does amazing sculpts, and he did these Chechen sculpts for tiny terrain models in the UK. But in addition to this, Hero Forge, for people that want to make really unique characterful models. They have a wide variety of poses, a wide variety of kind of flowing cloth. And that's one of the things that I like about Igor's sculpts as well, is that none of them are static figures. They're all figures in motion, you know, doing a variety of different things. So certainly miniatures here, perhaps a a series of maybe 15 different potential characters, and then talking about the various components to this thing, particularly associated with how people are raised and you know, the various movements of, uh, you know, religious scholarship, um, academic scholarship, obviously organized crime, just a wide variety of different components that created the soup of things that then led into the first Chechen war. So you're not going to be able to, to wander out and get a, a source book that, that covers this material. It's going to be, it won't be a gaming volume. It'll be a, on a historic text. So I've read, Four books, and I should say in parallel to this, Tiny Terrain is releasing a skirmish game based on Chechnya, and I've had some correspondence with them as well, because obviously if they come out with a game first, then that saves me a huge amount of pennies in some regard. But unfortunately, they haven't come out with it, and my perspective is that there are four historical source books plus an account of a doctor, uh, a medical doctor who ended up in uh, New York, but basically who served through the first Chechen wars, primarily just repairing people, but also uh, through being there, participating in the conflict. And this, his narrative in particular is one of the most honest accounts of the cultural history of the Chechen people leading into this conflict. And it's actually really fascinating. The military, particularly, there's very little pro-Chechen, you know, separatist history that's available. There's a bunch of Chechen written history, which mm-hmm. requires a lot of translating. So a majority of the history is pro-Russian or pro-American, which is even more curious, analysis 
And that has been probably three quarters of the reference material I have access to. Okay. Well, so that's, that's a good, good amount to, to go on, but um, I, it is a very specific subset of uh, the hybrid of wargaming and role-playing games, the topic matter itself. Hmm. Are you confident that the material is compelling enough for other people at work to be enthusiastic about it? Well, I think uh, you know, this is this is the real test, right? Mm-hmm. This is not a one, two, three game test. The first okay. game is the introduction. It's creating the characters. It's maybe starting a little bit of the story. But really, the first day has to convey to people the potential and trajectory of this thing. It's a relatively, in fact, it's a completely unique environment to a majority of my co-workers. And the kind of reading I do, particularly associated with the Second World War, certainly small amounts of reading in the Vietnam conflict, a bunch of reading in other conflicts, give me a kind of military narrative perspective. But this is why I think the Doctor's account is particularly fascinating. And there are a bunch, when I say a bunch, there are three documentaries which cover the conclusion of the conflict. This is the conclusion of the Second Chechen War and what happened afterwards. Obviously, they all have a very particular humanitarian line, which isn't particularly in favour of, you know, what happened afterwards. But it does provide this story of mass, like military police, basically, mass operations of military police that come through towns and villages and basically take away a majority of the men of a certain age and the kind of post-conflict interrogation and all that kind of stuff. So it's interesting to see how long I can take this thing for. An important point that I wanted to make, which I think I've made in this podcast previously, but I just want to state again, I am basing this game on the conflict. I can't make this game absolutely perfectly historically accurate. It needs to be something which is enthralling to play, fascinating, has elements of, obviously, you know, like spy, thriller, military, you know, thriller. I didn't mention this here, but the Cuban Revolution, reading around the individual characters in the Cuban Revolution, also impacts some of this associated with just kind of medium-term guerrilla warfare and attrition and starvation and, you know, all these kind of things as well. So I don't come to this unpolluted. And certainly the Just Plain Chaos rules are in part based on a book called The Mini Manual of the Urban Gorilla, which is basically a terrorist, not even a terrorist training book. It's built on a lot of the 1960s radicalism written by a Brazilian fellow who was killed soon after writing it. So mm. I've got all these bits and pieces here, and I've got to create a compelling experience for my co-workers out of it. It could fall flat on its face. <laughs> Well, all of this could fall flat on this face. But I well, think there are certainly enough elements here to make this something that could potentially be compelling. Yes, I, I think that is absolutely correct. It's just a question of how interested the individuals, uh, the, the information is presented to, find it so that they can become engaged with the story and the motivations of the players or the characters they're so, going to have. Well, Certainly, the Ninjas and Super Spies will cover what you want. It's got modifications for cover, visibility, range, prep for aiming. It's got hand, ex- an excess of hand-to-hand combat. <laughs> to my to my recollection or my knowledge, the the current favorite 
in Chechnya's mixed martial arts, mm-hmm. but they do have some Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioners there as well. Certainly, yeah. Uh, I don't know how far that goes back. I don't know whether in the 90s that was a thing for them. Uh, I would think there would have been some some level of suppression in what could be taught. Certainly. But, but I think the Russian military also trained people to do that as well. I mean, the hand-to-hand yeah. combat is a thing. I just don't know what style. Trained yeah. formally, yes, again. So there has to be a level of creative freedom in this thing that I'm creating. And mm-hmm. certainly what I'm thinking about most is that there will be three to five regular players who I should point out I've already played games with, right? Okay. So I know from the folks that move from D&D to just playing Chaos who transitioned and what they liked. So I have a duty to them primarily to create a game that will sustain them for multiple weeks. Right. There are additions. There are, you know, what might be called floaters or a variety of other people that would come in from game to game. Having characters for them, these kind of things. I was pretty, it was pretty easy with just playing Chaos because I had similarly maybe three or four characters just ready to pass on to people, very similar to the dwarves, the role that the dwarves played in the D&D campaign. But within that here, I think I have a duty to create characters. And what I should point out here as well is basing this game on Palladium means obviously there's a bunch of rules that I can't put in the feed here. Yes. But everything else I can. So my view is that what my hope is to do through this podcast is actually to track the deltas in this podcast. And more importantly, if there's a need to diverge from the Palladium rule system, which honestly I am not even... My view is that the month of July, in particular for me, is going to be a very useful month to have a bunch of paper, a bunch of pens, a bunch of scratching stuff out and writing new stuff, which is what I'm hoping for, to move forwards to an August of, you know, working on this more in September of actually playing it. So that's my time frame to do this thing. August and September, the end of August and September for me, or the end of August, the start of September, is when I go to the UK. So for this podcast in particular, I don't I don't even fathom the possibility of Steve Jackson or Ian Livingston being potential guests on this podcast. And I mention it to them. Certainly all my communication so far is with Ian Livingston and he seems like an amazingly generous gentleman. Mm-hmm. So maybe, who knows? <laughs> I'm not going to even predict the potential for this <laughs> thing happening. But my hope is in having a lunchtime discussion with them but maybe, in the best possible world, we might have an opportunity to chat with one of them on a future recording for this thing. But really, my time frame is, and I've got to say this as well, I've got a bunch of miniatures which are currently out being painted for this game. My relationship with miniature painters over the past six months has been fractured at best. I've let go miniature painters. I have a current miniature painter. And I'm just waiting for him to send stuff back, and then I'll let him go. I've got another miniature painter who I've effectively let go, but she's painting some stuff for and one of my other miniature painters who wanted her to paint some stuff for him that he would then touch up and send back to me. So I've got all these things in flux with miniature painters. The one thing I'm almost positive of is that is going to be the weak link in the chain for this game, and I may not actually have the miniatures ready by September. Mm-hmm. So, But my, as you well know, Chris, having worked with me for many years, I am someone who plans, strategizes, and works towards various temporal goals. And this very much is a temporal goal that I'm working towards. So well, you will hear, no doubt, more updates coming up. We'll uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed. 
and hopefully everything will turn out uh, for the best. <laughs> Any other um, topics? Anything else you wanted to discuss? On the subject of Mr. Livingston and Mr. Jackson, mm. uh, I had mentioned to you and Matthew the White Dwarf Repository at archive.org, oh and in issue number one, with its delightful uh, line art cover, yes. it, uh, Ian Livingston has an article on Metamorphosis Alpha, and Steve Jackson reviews a war game called The Warlord, mm. which was great fun to to go through. I've, I've cracked open many, many uh, memories of the early days, 1980, 1981 mm -hmm. sort of time frame, by going through these, these old issues of The White Dwarf, which I couldn't afford to buy at the time. But you still can't I, afford to buy them now, believe me. <laughs> well, yeah, I've seen the prices on some of them are ridiculous. They're, yes. uh, I thought the Shortline Gazette was expensive to buy back issues of. Not like yeah. White Dwarf, yes. Well, it's it's nice that they've allowed this uh, archive to exist. There are a few missing below 100, and I'm really focusing on the first 100 because that covered the uh, the generic uh, general role-playing scene rather than what it became uh, primarily a Warhammer uh, publication. But it also it also laid out the basis for Warhammer in a way... Some of my favourite issues are in the 80s and 90s, because yeah. that's where... Sorry, the numerical 80s and 90s. Numerical, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mid-80s through to um, late 80s. Because that laid out where they moved from being a really small-scale operation to something where they actually had to employ people to look through miniature bats and catalogue miniatures. And, you know, there's a discussion associated with moving from, you know, a large shed-sized operation to actually an office and building, you know. There's a lot of beautiful transition stuff in the company, which I find really fascinating to read still to this day, which actually comes towards the end of that, era of, of White Dwarfs. And it also shows the character of a number of the people within, you know, the company, which are one of the things that really fascinates me about Games Workshop is how they got so many miscreants together productively <laughs> to make this thing that kind of continues on to this day. I mean, I have trouble gathering together another couple of miscreants. <laughs> I mean, you know, Model Rail Radio aside. Mm -hmm. In my general life, particularly, you know, what I do with simulations, there's a kind of critical level of miscreant count, and once you get past about two, it's just impossible. But they were through, I guess, selective rewards in some regard, but also just producing, to a huge extent, able to bring in so many different crazy creative people and produce this thing. TSR enjoyed a similar uh, transition from basement to second-hand, second-rate, sort of an empty hotel and then into their bigger offices near the end. Uh, it just, it was, to me, seeing the articles, seeing the ads, especially for oh, yeah. games that were brand new at the time, oh, yeah. and the articles themselves talking about, well, this is how you should play the game. I mean, it's 1978, <laughs> this is how you should play the game. Yes. And even Mr. Gygax writing in and saying, well, I'm working on the DMG right now before before it's published. And uh, if I don't get it done because I'm busy writing the article for you guys, then I only have you to blame. Yes. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I'm just delighted to find something like that. Completely unexpected. I was looking for something else entirely. As you this, too. Yeah. <laughs> this link showed up in the, in the recommended feed, and I'm like, wait a minute, I better look at that. Now, you mentioned something about simulation 
how is Noble Warfare coming along? So what I'm working on currently is a server-based version of Noble Ape, which I'm calling Noble Ape IO. And the Noble Warfare is critical through that because Noble Warfare enables me to find very particular kinds of bugs. So there's a memory leak that I'm tracking currently which shows itself most strongly in Noble Warfare that I need to actually fix in order to get Noble APIO working. My aim with Noble Warfare is to get it to a state where it could be run independently. So you have two, you have two clients which are just basically like game screens and you have a Noble Warfare instance running independent of their computer. So you and I, we have never met. Horrible thing, but we have never met. <laughs> we could both have Noble Warfare clients running and we could play a war game through Noble Warfare that was being run out in the cloud somewhere, not even on either of our computers. So that's the aim that I'm working towards currently. And it's done through a variety of different pieces, standardization, what have you. But Noble Warfare is a critical part of this thing because I run the core of the Noble Ape software through Noble Warfare and for particular kinds of bugs and interactions, uh, Noble Warfare is very useful. So the aim would be, I've, I've got a Windows machine that I've gotten everything except for Noble Warfare running pretty well. Uh, the Mushroom Boy, which is the urban environment for Noble Ape uh, and the simulation itself, run on Windows fine. Noble Warfare has some issues with the Windows version specifically that I need to debug and, and fix because I need to have that running as well. So it's platform agnostic, then people can run it on the Mac or Windows, or whatever, and then okay. interact, play these games. So that's where Noble Warfare is currently, very much in transition, but moving towards this vision of having two people who are playing a, ga a collective game across the internet. So how are the the um, inputs fed in? Is it table of values? Is it parametric sliders? Is it... Oh, so it's selection. It's very much... So Noble Warfare was inspired very heavily by two things. The first was the Total War series of games, which came out in the early 90s, but also was a BBC show, I think it was BBC, I'm pretty sure it was BBC, called Time Commanders, which took a variety of different people from, you know, tennis clubs or Scrabble clubs or, you know, beer hall trivia clubs, you know, the classic kind of British archetypes. There might have been mobile railroaders in there, I don't remember. But, you know, <laughs> the classic kind of British archetypes where people have clubs and put them in historical battles so they could play, you know, Hannibal or, you know, the Romans against Hannibal or so many different, you know, historical battles that these regular people off the streets of the UK came in to fight these battles. So Noble Warfare for me is very much in the vein of Everything should be mouse selectable. And thankfully, two button mice make it a little easier. Three button mice make it even easier. Um, but also, I have um, rotation, so I can use trackpads and things as well. So it's designed very much to be interaction based on the setup. And the setup is done through files, as I've described in this podcast, which contain the underlying statistics of the various units and the number of you know combatants in each of the units and these kind of things. So... It's something also that can be shared, manipulated as well. You could come to it with your, you know, your skeleton army, for example, versus my orc army. Noble Warfare is the agreed upon setting. The stats are pre-calculated. The points values are pre-calculated, which means you would then have your army limited based on the size of my army or you come to some agreement or raise it or lower it or what have you. Total War, and Total War has continued on. There's a Warhammer Total War that's now available. 
where you can fight with Warhammer armies. But Total War is very limited to the actual point cost that you can get within various battles. Some of the later versions and some of the PC versions allowed for some expense. Nova Warfare has none of that limitation. So you can create many, many multi-part armies that are fighting over a, a shared field. That is the dream for it. Obviously, it's all open source. And right. It's there sufficient to certainly run reasonably on the Mac for kind of reproducible battles. The actual interaction part, it's currently mainly associated with automated battles to, you know, measure point costs and things like that. But there are, there are fewer, unfortunately, now than there were, but there are open source wargaming uh, game engines, strategic or tactical simulation engines out there as well. One of the ones that I find fascinating is called Zero AD, which has a bunch of existing clip art for doing kind of more tactical and strategic, but certainly doing, you know, the standard kind of Age of Empires games. So there is artwork and other things out there that I can borrow upon. But what I'm working on currently is just getting the various components working through this Noble APIO part. And the main thing about open source, which is really important to state, is it's actually about getting people involved. I spend a vast quantity of my time working towards something where I can get other people involved working on this thing. And that is one of the things that I'm really working towards. Obviously, as you well know, I've had a substantial intellectual property assault through this thing, through this period of time too. Yes. So this is the tail end of that. I've had all my stuff expunged from Wikipedia because this person paid people to do that on Wikipedia. So I'm in a very kind of negative deficiency associated with this for my project of 23 years. But maybe I, you know, make a open source non-profit thing that holds all of this. Maybe I do that in the future. But for now, it's very much associated with getting this Noble APIO thing working. And Noble Warfare is certainly a component of that. And uh, what uh, this is difficult to ask is it? it's not going to be era specific. You can simulate any technological level of the combatants mm -hmm. through this uh, is it going to go as far as chemical biological nuclear so or is my, all hand to hand my aim has been to simulate up until probably the american civil war was one deadline that i wanted to try it does medieval and pre-medieval seamlessly but certainly what interests me particularly with things like the new model army but also certainly things through the American Civil War was the movement from very organized structures to basically guerrilla warfare. And my view is that it should be able to go up to the American Civil War quite comfortably. Moving on from that, that includes cannons, I should add, but obviously cavalry and everything else through that. Okay. Moving on from that, though, it would be wonderful to simulate the you know, the First and Second World War conflicts too. I mean, obviously, you've got to add things like tanks, a wide variety of really destructive range weapons, which come through, obviously, in the First World War. So, yeah, but that is very much for the future. Currently, anything medieval or prior, cannons not quite yet, uh, but probably coming relatively soon, but everything prior to cannons. Okay, and do uh, do terrain and weather factor in on this, or almost is that certainly? Yet to okay, yes. Terrain has always been an important part of Noble Eight, particularly with line of sight, weather as well. Uh, these are two things which I don't have actively in the you know the code is there. It's just not actively used in the current testing that I do with Noble Warfare. 
That being said, incredibly easy to integrate. Earlier Nova Warfare certainly had uh, terrain landscapes. The weather is already there with Noble 8, so that's an easy addition for when I want to throw that in too. But yeah, the dream is to have all of the above. Okay, and you mentioned the uh, the historical source material that you had a number of volumes for, which is Warhammer Historical. Mm-hmm. Uh, in I believe you're talking to uh, Barney at that point in mm-hmm. time. I think and it was one of my solo podcasts, potentially, where I talked about um, just how that was also important, obviously, Time Commanders, the Total War series, but also the Warhammer Historicals, in particular their English Civil War time, uh, their armies of chivalry, the early gunpowder age through that, just amazing source material. And it's all closed up as of 2012. Games Workshop shut the whole thing down. Yeah, you can find it in second-hand bookstores. I think oh. you can probably find the PDFs, maybe. But yeah, sadly, all... I mean, there's a community online. There's certainly a Facebook community and, uh, you know, a Yahoo Groups community around this, but yeah. The texts are quite expensive on... Uh eBay and Amazon, the ones they were able to find. AB books, you can, I've bought them through AB books. They're not, I mean, they're, I can't recall. I mean, I think I paid $15 was the most that I've paid. We have a, thankfully in the Bay area, in the San Francisco Bay area, we have local stores, Gator Games, for example, here. You can pick up a good number of the historicals still in the kind of 15 to $20 range. Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, Games Workshop still owns intellectual property, though. They haven't sold that off to a third party, have they? I wish they would. I mean, yeah, I, think, yeah. I think this is, um, in particular, the games that followed, um, the Black Powder Rules, these kind of things were all not really of the same cloth. I, one of, it wasn't Black Powder specifically, although it would have gotten me kicked off the podcast that I was on if I'd done a negative review of it. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think the, you know, the post-Games Workshop folk that came out with historical rules still gave a heavy homage to a lot of the things that I don't particularly like about the Games Workshop rules. So, yeah, it's an interesting... What came after Warhammer Historical is a podcast probably worth recording at some stage. Definitely, because, I mean, it's... Uh, the Osprey... Is it Osprey books have yep. all the historic color plate books showing... Um, every, every manner of uniform plus the... They have their own rule systems as well. In fact, yeah. the rule yeah. system that I was kicked off about was critical associated with the modern uh, you know, modern Iraq conflict and I think the rules, while not being Osprey specifically, I think it might actually be published by Osprey, but they used all their Osprey art for it. I mean, what's happened it's worth talking about. I actually want to talk about this associated with the magazines. What's happened with magazines and books and everything in this area is there's been a consolidation of intellectual property in war games specifically in the past 10 years, which I think is actually really very bad for the, the hobby. It creates this kind of monolith of stuff, which is all, it makes, you know, White Dwarf look like a pluralist publication. And you end mm-hmm. up with this very curious thing where no one is, looking critically at rules, no one is looking for better rules. Instead, you're just in this organ of, like, production. Uh, and it's very curious what has happened with the wargaming magazine. I was in um, San Francisco last weekend, and I found uh, War Games Illustrated from the mid-2000s. And it's, you look back on this thing, and it's just like, it's so... Even 10 years ago, it was so freer and more, you know, decentralized than it is now. So, yeah. 
I just find it odd that there are so many games that came out in the 78 to 85 time frame that are now on their fifth, sixth, seventh edition <laughs> rules. And uh, it's odd because in most cases, an early edition, an earlier edition will do just as well mm. for a game session than some of the newer ones. Mm. And I'm, uh, I mean, a lot of the rework seems to be just organizational or art headers and stuff like that, rather than fundamental changes to the uh, to the mechanics. Except when uh, a, a new owner take takes over, mm. uh, like where War um, RuneQuest was done by Chaosium. And then it was done by Avalon Hill, and then mm -hmm. it was done by somebody else, and now Cassium has it back again. Mm -hmm. And each time it shifted hands, there were major changes in, t in terms of mechanics. But as long as the original publisher or the original author is still working on it, it seems to stay much more consistent. But I don't see why. Well, yes, I do see why. Uh, because once everybody has every copy or everything that was released for a certain edition, they're not going to buy anymore. So you release a new edition and start it all over again. Yes. But, Are you familiar um, with the Oldhammer community that just play third edition Warhammer? Uh, I'm f I've heard of them, but I don't know anybody that does that. I know so that uh, that's also the period of time that really, I, in terms of my miniature interests for Citadel, that's exactly the same period of time. So I belong to a lot of the groups on Facebook that do this. In fact, it's one of the places where I posted Barney's video. Right, they're a fascinating group because they still play this game. You know now. 25 years old, perhaps, mm -hmm. with the same reverence. The, the, their miniature painting has gotten better. The figures look, some of them, they're homages to the original figures. Some of them are very much painted with modern figure painting techniques. But they really, really, really love that rule system. And they're not budging. And this well, is an abused group associated with, obviously, what happened with Warhammer Fantasy. It became Age of Sigma and completely changed. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating to see these folks saying, third edition, that's what we're playing. And it's well, a substantial it, community. It, it is a bit of a kick uh, in the teeth when you invest in a number of armies for a particular edition of the game, and then the subsequent edition comes out and deprecates <laughs> all those. I mean, you lose, you know, an entire army of orcs or an entire army of dwarves so, or entire, you know, they, they just, they're not supported in the new rules. You mm -hmm. can't play them in tournaments. So that you're stuck with, running the old rules with anybody who wants to play with you. And that's how, well, there's lots of people that play uh, either first edition AD&D or even uh, OD&D, the, mm. the small books, yep, certainly. or some uh, uh, old school revival version of that, like Swords and Wizardry or so, Osric or something. Yeah. And you can have a lot of fun doing that. Uh, I picked up the Osric rules, the V2 that came out, uh, available free for some reason. I, that's a labor of love. There's over 500 pages in this thing. <laughs> and they do falling damage the correct way in that version of the rules, mm. which even, which even D and D itself didn't get right. Although it was spoken in at least one of the magazines that it should have been uh, D six per 10 feet per 10 feet. So mm. rather than flat, and yes, that's the hill I'm going to die on. I, that's that, <laughs> that's the proper way to do damage. When you hit 60 feet, it's 20 d6, and that's all there is to it. That's been a lot of uh, a lot of fun looking at uh, other interpretations of old rules. Certainly. And uh, other than that, I've had a chance to play some 5e D&D uh, online, mm -hmm. uh, sort of theater of the mind. 
Mm-hmm. We're, we're not into maps just yet. Did I inspire that in my discussions? I remember you saying at somewhere in our correspondence that you heard me talking about someone doing that and then you explored it yourself just for your t- own time constraints. I had, uh, I had a sort of a, a random encounter on one of the discussion boards and they were looking for players to try out a couple of things because they had not GM'd uh, 5th edition D&D or in mm. fact any D&D. And they said, what do you know about it? I said, well, I know this much. I said, great, you can be one of my players. So we've done four sessions so far. Cool. Uh, the dice mechanic. We're using Roll20 for the uh, character sheets and the dice rolling. Mm-hmm. But uh, the audio is via Discord, which is working well for five people. Mm. The audio quality is very good, and there's very few dropouts. So mm. can't complain. Uh, it's funny coming back and playing a Dwarven Fighter which was my go-to character in first edition, doing that in fifth edition and just enjoying the heck out of it, frankly. Certainly, yeah. But it's not, it's quite obviously not that, while it enjoys some of the same feeling of first edition, it is obviously not the same game. Yes. Um, and the the influence of third edition with the feats and fourth mm-hmm. edition with uh, your dailies and uh, um, consumable attacks, it's fantastic. mm and, of course, I've lost pretty much every game of Battletech I sat down to play. Mm. Uh, despite the beautiful new sculpted miniatures for the <laughs> mechs, I don't seem to be able to win a game. Now, thankfully, Harmony Gold seems to have lost its stranglehold on the IP for the mechs. And we're going to see some of the more iconic ones coming out with the July expansion. Mm. So things that haven't been available since... Good grief, probably 20 years, 25 years when the MechWarrior games were on the PC. Certainly. That we'll, we'll finally see those as minis to complement the old Ironwind Metals ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, disappointing, though, the, the box, the, the actual game box, is, pr- is very sturdy, very thick, uh, got great artwork on it, but the map boards are tabloid, B-size, 11, uh, 17 by 22, mm-hmm. four-fold, plain mm. paper and they're not going to last for any length of time mm. in that. I, I, I really expected something along the lines of uh, of the old uh, Avalon Hill board games where you you know you flipped out uh, a nicely nice heavy sheet of uh, cardstock yes and I, I don't know whether I should they had cloth hinges as well on some of the games as well I yes. think you recall that was a, an important built, feature built for a long uh, long term use yes so I may end up taking all of the maps out of the box sets and having them laminated and then roll them up rather than continually fold and unfold the uh, mm. the paper because it's just going to disintegrate. Um, I've got some old uh, uh, game design workshop traveler stuff with the uh, with the maps that fold it up and every every crease is illegible and that's no good on a star map. Yes, if you can't tell whether there's a scout base there with a with a suitable refueling point, it's no good to me. There's, of course, there's more topics based on your discussions with, with Barney and uh, with Matthew. And uh, I have been in touch with Matthew by email to see if there is some possibility of us <laughs> occupying similar uh, similar locales in the space-time continuum over the next few months. Yes. Uh, what was the comment that Barney made here that I really enjoyed? The I-go-you-go mechanic. Ah, uh, Yes. And especially in skirmish battles, uh, versus simultaneous resolution of actions or uh, attacks. And there's a lot of games where without the I go, you go, it becomes difficult to adjudicate. 
Well, I think that's what's interesting associated with the bolt action rule system where you physically take your turn or your opponent's turn out of a bag. I mean, yes. I think the, the level of contact in these things, it's, it's interesting actually. It's the old, you know, egg in the instant cake mix thing, <laughs> like cracking an egg apparently changes your, you know, connection with the cake mix. It's a similar thing with these games that the means of activation have to have a certain degree of intimacy in order for players to respect it. And I think that's a very important thing that, you know, some of these games that use just cards and, Maybe less so than actually reaching into a bag and taking out a dice. It's it's funny. The the test of honor uh, skirmish game. You have one token for each of the commoners that you've got the Ashiguru mm-hmm. uh, on your side, plus one token for all the Ashiguru on the other side, and every samurai has three activation tokens. Mm. So they get multiple actions per turn if. When you draw a, a token out during your uh, your phase, you can use that to attack another uh, unit on the board. If that unit has yet to take their action, they are allowed a defense. Mm. So then if they make the defense attempt, then a token for that type is taken out of the, the bowl or the bag because you've used it up. But if they've already used their action for that turn, then they are sitting ducks for the attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, if you've used up all attacks of a certain type for your side, and you draw out another token for that type, you have to give it to your opponent, and they can take the move, which I thought was really interesting. So if you've used up all your commoners, and you've still got some samurai moves left, and you draw out another commoner token, you have to give it to your opponent, and then they can act on it. It's made for some very hairy... I've, I've lost literally by one inch uh, <laughs> in the movement phase, because my initial position... For the samurai, for that uh, that assignment or that scenario, I placed him very close to the edge of the board. Instead of, I could have gone up to three inches into the board mm. and placed him. And when I finished my moves, I was cut down one inch from the edge of the board to, to my victory condition. Distressing, but realistic. So, Speaking of being uh, cut down with an inch yes. from the edge of the board, yes. my unfortunately, my Friday begins very early. Mm-hmm. My Thursday began sufficiently early. I'm not sure I'm going to be available for coherent speech for much longer, but I did nope. want to conclude by saying we need to do this more frequently, Chris. Absolutely, I agree. Um, I may have some time next week in a more uh, an earlier point in the night, mm. so you're not up till 10 or 10.30, and I'm not into... Well, I'm an hour into Friday already, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, it's been an absolute pleasure, Chris. You have a specific email address... I do indeed. For this podcast where people can get in contact. What is that email address? It is rpgfan at bell.net. That's bell is in telephone, bravo, echo, lima, lima, dot net. Chris Abbott, it's been far too long. Let us <laughs> not let four months go between the next time we speak. A pleasure as always. I have, I have homework from this recording. <laughs> so give me a chance to do the homework and then we'll get back together and have another wonderful conversation. I'm looking forward to it. Me too, Tom. Terrific. Cheers. Take care.